Hey, greetings, everybody. How's it going? This is uh, Joe Driscoll back with the Salt City Grind. We took a couple of weeks off to uh, enjoy the summer and really just relax and uh, see some family and stuff. But I'm back to, uh, you know, exploring the issues in the 315 and, and uh, getting you guys up to speed on what's going on here. Uh, some big news. We've got uh, the website is just a day or two from being launched. We've got uh, we're going to be up on Spotify, Apple, all those things. Uh, the episodes are available up on YouTube uh, and, of course, here on Facebook. Um, so you, soon you'll be able to check the website, saltcitygrind.com, to get updated on everything that's going on. So we're, we're taking it up a level with our organizational skills, having all the episodes in one place where you can get it on Apple, Spotify, all those places you can check in um, to get episodes. Uh, shout out to our sponsors for this month, uh, Original Grain and Glazed and Confused. Um, we're going to be, uh, shouting them out. Um, thanks so much for their support this week. Just a quick plug. We got the, uh, fillet Fridays for glazed and infused. They're doing their strawberry shortcake lines around the block for these amazing donuts. So stop down to glazing infused in downtown Syracuse. Uh, I'm going to be plugging, you know, uh, vendors that I believe in that have a good product. So, uh, not just, uh, any hack will be a sponsor, uh, only stuff I really love. So, Check Glazing Infused with their uh, their amazing donuts on Philip Friday. Um, that being said, today we've got an amazing guest I'm very excited about. I know a lot of people have been uh, looking forward to this guest. Uh, I'll bring her in now, Dana Balter. Hi, Joe. Hey. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. How's everything going? Great. Um, well, you know, <laughs> I, the, the world's a bit of a mess. Um, but personally, uh, right now things are going well and I'm very thankful for that. It's so hard when people ask you how you're doing these days, isn't it? I'm like, besides society coming unglued and unraveling and right. a, a constant right. sense of impending anxiety, I'm doing great. Um, yes, it is a weird question, but I also think, you know, that sort of makes it more important for us to appreciate the things that are going well, even when they're small things. Um, and I think we have to give ourselves permission to be happy about the things that are good, uh, even though there's a lot of, of distress and anxiety and, and real, you know, immense challenges that people are facing. Um, I think that makes it all the more important to hold on to whatever the good things are and uh, focus on them as much as possible. Amen. So a couple of good things for your camp. Uh, two big announcements in the last few days. One, uh, you got a endorsement from President Barack Obama. Uh, yeah. that was, that's pretty exciting. That's pretty cool, right? It is pretty exciting. Um, I am really honored by that. Uh, I think, you know, I, I have always thought President Obama was an extraordinary leader and president. Um, the chaos of the last three and a half years has only made that uh, so much more pronounced. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, I'm, I'm honored by his endorsement, but it also came at a time where I really needed a reminder of what government can look like when it's competent and compassionate and um, having receiving that endorsement from him sort of brought me back to that um, yeah. at a, at a moment when I, I really needed that boost. So yeah, it was, it was great. 
And another big shot in the arm for you guys this week. Uh, Alameen Muhammad is joining the team uh, from We Rise Above the Streets. He's been a guest here. I think he was one of my first two or three guests on the podcast. Uh, amazing individual. We Rise Above the Streets. Um, how did that come about? You guys, uh, you guys reached out to him and. Yeah, well, we, Alameen, I'm so grateful, has decided to join our team as a field organizer on the campaign. Um, you know, we put out the word that we were hiring, and I was hoping against hope that amazing people in our community would apply for this job. And when Alameen indicated that he was at all interested, uh, possibly, in getting involved, exactly, <laughs> that is exactly what we did. Um, I'm so grateful. I mean, everybody watching this, I'm sure, knows what an extraordinary human being he is. And yeah. um, I'm really excited that he's decided to do this. It's something new for him. And I hope that, um, you know, it it is a great experience for him. I know it's having him on the team is going to be invaluable to the campaign. Um, and I think really good for the Syracuse community at large, because, you know, one of the things we've got to do looking at all the craziness that we have, you know, referenced already that's happening, we've got to build more political action and more capacity for political action at the grassroots level all across our communities. And I think having really good organizers get involved in campaigns is one of the great ways to do that. So I'm, I'm excited about not only what it means for our campaign, but what it means for growing political power in the city of Syracuse beyond our campaign. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, especially in, you know, in serving the homeless and uh, at risk communities and economically insecure communities, you, you can't, there's no way to, to have those relationships unless you've built them for years like he has, you know, and built that right. trust, you know? Right. It's, and, it's and, and an intimate understanding of some of the most difficult challenges that our communities face, right? Which is, it's so important to have people at the table who get it um, and who can shine light on the most difficult problems and help, you know, advance solutions and make sure that the process of, of building those solutions and implementing them is inclusive of the people who know those challenges best, right? Which are the people who face challenges themselves. So um, yeah, I just, you know, any way you slice it, I think this is a phenomenal development and I consider myself extraordinarily lucky. Amen, amen. So uh, I don't know if you've checked in the episodes in the past, but I tried to, you know, put it out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and solicit questions from the public. And I feel mm -hmm. like that's a great way to use social media to, to engage with, you know, not only electeds, I've, you know, I've met with a lot of people in the community, but to get that com real community conversation rather than, than just that, so I'll, I'll go to a couple of questions we got. Um, okay. Okay. What, oh, what? Sorry. Hold on. Oh, sorry about that. No, it's all good. <laughs> what was that one? We'll just turn that off. <laughs> not, like, not like someone was passionate on there. I don't, I don't Yes. I, I almost want to see what they were up to. Um, <laughs> What actions would you take uh, in the House of the Representatives to spur true economic development, job creation, and population growth here in central New York? It's a great question. That is, um, 
so much at the heart of, I, I think, solving a lot of our problems. Um, we, we need to be building, I talk all the time about building an economy that works for everyone. And there are a couple of things that I mean by that. One is this idea of fairness, right? Right now, our policy is skewed so that most of the benefits of everything that we do um, in the government go to folks at the top of the economic ladder and leave the rest of us behind. And so the, the first principle is to, to flip that and make sure that average people, right, the everyday working families of central and western New York are the beneficiaries of the policies that we create. That's one piece of building an economy that works for everybody. But the other piece is really getting at, at this question, which is how do we generate opportunity for people? Um, I think we are in uh, a very strange moment right now, right? We talked already about um, the crises that we're facing and the COVID. Okay, guys. Sorry, folks, there's two dogs here with me and uh, <laughs> they're likely to weigh in on these questions. Gracie, come here. You're passionate um, as well. Get it, you know? Yeah. Um, they, so one of the ways that um, we can deal with the crisis, right? We have to um, think about how we are going to build an economic recovery that. Uh, includes everyone. And one of the things that I think we need to do is make major investments in an infrastructure program mm. at the federal level. That's one of the things that I think is going to be a key to our regional recovery and economic growth, not just in the few years recovering from this crisis, but over the next two or three decades. Because we all know, I mean, you spend any time here in central New York, you know how many infrastructure projects there are that need attention, right? Everything from street paving to replacing water systems, right? How many times in the last five years have uh, pipes burst and spilled sewage into Onondaga Lake, right? We've got to replace water systems. Um, one of the infrastructure needs that this crisis really highlighted is the need for universal broadband access, mm. right? This was such a huge problem for families in the city when we went to remote learning with schools that so many of our households don't have reliable broadband access. It's a problem in our rural communities because if people are out there trying to engage in the marketplace, start a small business, they don't have access. So rural broadband, urban broadband, this is a huge component of an infrastructure plan going forward. Um, we've got the I-81 project here, which whenever that gets going is gonna be a massive project with lots and lots of jobs attached. Um, we need to invest in renewable energy, right? This is, I think, the other piece. So we've got sort of the broad infrastructure package, and then I want to see, and I will work on major renewable energy investments. And part of that is infrastructure. We've got to modernize the grid. We need equipment. Um, but part of that is also research and development, manufacturing, right? All of the parts of generating a really strong and thriving renewable energy sector, which is the future. And I don't want to see us let other countries corner that market before it even 
um, reaches capacity, right? Mm. It's going to be decades of economic growth. And I want to see us here in central and western New York at the forefront of that, because I think we have what it takes. We've got uh, phenomenal scientific institutions. We know how to make things in central New York. Um, this is a way that we can really grow our regional economy. So those are the two pieces that I think are going to make the most dramatic impact for us here. Um, and then there's lots of attached pieces that we have to keep our eyes on, things like making sure that uh, there are transportation options and childcare options so that people can take those jobs and get to those jobs. Mm. Um, and of course, as we're growing jobs, we've got to make sure we have to insist that companies are treating workers fairly. And mm. that means supporting unions. That means uh, strengthening worker protections. That means fair wages, right? I don't want to attract jobs that don't pay a living wage. We should be bringing jobs to this region that people can support themselves and their families on. Um, so there's a lot of details that we have to keep our eyes on and make sure that we're insisting on things being done the right way. Um, but those I think are sort of the two main thrusts of, of what's going to be major revitalization for our region. Nice. Um, this one was uh, said something about, I, I dislike the campaign ads. It seems like we're just slapping, uh, slamming CatCo. Um, I, I want to hear more about the focus of your policy platform. So I guess maybe uh, we could, you know, you could talk about ads and, you know, what in particular, you know, would be, um, you know, kind of a first 100 days. What would be the what would be the the, the signature? Um, you know, someone else responded on that thread with your, uh, you, know, you know, your policy page on, on your website. Um, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about, you know, um, different ad, you know, the going on attack in, in, in ads sure. and, and uh, what are your feelings about what, what are the, the two or three items that you would want to hold up as your uh, policy, you know, uh, foundational pieces? Sure. So um, those are both really good questions. I'm going to tackle them as two separate questions. Let me talk about yeah. the policy piece first, and then we can talk about um, ads and campaigning. So my uh, three priority issues that I talk the most about, they are the focus on my website um, and they are the things that resonate most strongly with Central and Western New Yorkers are healthcare, the economy and money and politics. I didn't just pull these things out of thin air, right? I built this platform based on conversations with thousands of voters all across the district. Um, figuring out what people care about the most, what the greatest challenges that they feel like they are facing as individuals, that their families are facing, and that our communities are facing collectively. So um, let's look at the healthcare piece, for example. I am very committed to making sure that everybody gets access to healthcare. Right now, far too many people are um, unable to see doctors, are unable to afford the medications that they need. They are locked out of a health insurance system that's broken. Or in many cases, there are people who have health insurance who still can't afford care because premiums and deductibles and co-pays and drug costs are so out of control. So I wanna focus on getting both insurance and care to everybody. 
I've talked many times about how I think we do that. Our Medicare system is very good. It's not perfect and it, we need to make improvements, but it's very good and it's the most efficient health insurance program in the world. And I wanna give everybody access to it. I think we get there in stages. We start by lowering the age of eligibility from 65 to 55. We offer a public buy-in, so anybody of any age who wants to participate can. We start enrolling babies when they're born. So from day one of life, you're guaranteed coverage. Each phase like that expands the roles, give access to more people. It gives more um, competition for the private sector. So people who still have private insurance will get better services at better rates. And the version of Medicare for All that I support maintains a role for private insurance, just like our current Medicare system does. So if you want more than what Medicare offers you, the private market is there to cater to you. I think that's the best way that we get from where we are right now with tens of millions of people still not having access and hundreds of millions of people facing uh, unbearable costs I think that's how we get from where we are now to a situation where everybody has access and can afford coverage. I know we're going to have a lot of points on this. Do you mind if I, if I just tap in on sure. one? Sure. Do, do you feel that um, this incremental, um, you know, the, the, the steps you talked about going from 65 to 55, do you feel that the end goal is a single payer system similar to what, you know, many European countries have like England, or, or do you feel that, uh, kind of this hybrid of of uh, a Medicare for all with the private uh, sector is is more the model. Are we trying to get to like sure. a European model in this in this example? So yes, but there are lots of different models in Europe, and I think there's a lot of confusion. Yes, what I'm advocating is a single payer system, but I think there's a lot of confusion about what single payer means, and that's why I don't say that. Right. Um, I am not advocating for a system like England. I am not advocating for a system where the government provides medical care. I am advocating for a system where government pays for insurance, that insurance is provided by government. Medical care is provided by private providers. And by the way, we need to increase our supply of providers. We don't have enough doctors. We don't have enough medical centers. We don't have enough substance abuse treatment and mental health treatment. And if we're really going to solve the healthcare problem, we've got to talk about the supply side also, which we don't spend enough time on because mm. um, there's a role for the federal government to play in that as well. But what I am advocating for is um, that everybody gets to uh, have insurance and that the that we bring costs down so everybody can actually afford to get care, right? And there are European countries that have a model similar to what I'm describing. The example that comes to mind for me is Germany, where they have um, public provision. Everyone is guaranteed insurance, but there is also a private market. And in order to make that private market work, we have to make sure that there are rules that insist they treat people fairly. Uh, that's very, very important. Um, but that is just that country is one example of this kind of system that works, right? Um, and that the details to work that out are very complicated. And yeah. 
part of what I've been trying to talk about over the last few years as I have these healthcare conversations uh, with people all across the community is the notion that we can't expect that, you know, we elect a whole bunch of people who support universal health care and the next day we're going to have universal health care. Right, this right. is a very complicated process. And we've got to make sure that as we are crafting the legislation and building the policy, that we're doing it thoughtfully, that we have people participating in the process who are experts and stakeholders with all different perspectives. So we need to have um, doctors and nurses and administrators and insurance folks and patients and everybody who has a stake in the healthcare system, which by the way is everybody, right, needs to be part of that conversation. So we make sure that we are doing it in the best way possible. Um, which I think should hold true regardless of the policy area that you're talking about, right? You always want the, the policymaking process to be inclusive of as many stakeholders as possible. Um, so that's, uh, that's the basic healthcare piece. There are a lot more parts of that. And I'm happy to talk specifically about prescription drugs because that's a piece we can address separate and apart from Medicare uh, that we need to <laughs> address. Um, and should be easier to tackle and would make an instant difference in people's lives if we, uh, the bill that the House passed this year, HR3, um, which first and foremost would require Medicare to negotiate drug prices, that would immediately make a difference in everybody's life. Uh, the VA negotiates drug prices and they save about 40% on drug costs. I wanna see those savings available to everybody. Um, I think it probably goes without saying, but I'll say it. Our congressman voted against that bill. Yeah. Uh, he has consistently voted to keep drug prices high. Um, it's hard to understand that vote until you realize that he has taken over $160,000 in campaign contributions from Big Pharma. Um, then it makes the vote a little bit more understandable. But that is a piece of the healthcare puzzle that we could tackle tomorrow if the Senate were willing to take up that bill and pass it. Um, that would make a huge difference. You know, all these stories you hear about um, people dying because they can't afford their insulin, those are real. I have met those people here in our district. This is a matter of life and death for people, and, and we've there's nothing more important. So it has been and it remains a top issue for me. Um, the idea of building a fair economy is the second issue, and, and we already talked about a good piece of that. Um, there are, of course, more components, and a fair tax system is a really important piece of it. Um, the 2017 tax bill that John Katko voted for and helped pass has really been devastating for a lot of folks. I hear the stories all the time, people whose taxes went up by $3,000, union members who lost the deductibility of their dues, uh, an older couple who had to clean out three savings accounts to pay their tax bill last year. And on top of those stories, we know that the vast majority of the benefits of that bill went to the wealthiest people in this country and to corporations and to foreign investors, which is a piece we don't really talk much about. It incentivized offshoring jobs. It just was a top to bottom bad piece of, of legislation. Pardon me picking up the little dog. And um, 
So the economic piece is um, another important piece. And then getting big money out of politics uh, is a top priority because until we do, we're gonna have trouble making progress on all the other issues we care about. And the reason is pretty simple, right? I mentioned all of the, the big pharma money that John Catco takes. Well, it's not just big pharma. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars from oil and gas and insurance and big banks and the gun lobby. And on issue after issue after issue, the influence of that money advances policy that's not in our best interest. It's right. in the best interests of those corporations and their lobbyists. And that is um, a fundamental problem in our system that we've got to address. So for me, that always stays at the top of the legislative priority list. So those are my main priorities. I will say that given the context of the COVID crisis, a lot of priorities are gonna have to shift and Congress's focus for the next year, possibly more, is really going to have to be primarily on doing what we can to contain the spread of COVID-19 and providing both economic relief to individuals and households and economic stimulus to get our economy back on its feet. And that is gonna have to take priority over everything else because we're in an emergency situation. So um, the one reason I think I will still be able to work on the priorities I laid out is that all of those things are intimately connected with the COVID response. Right. Um, but we're in more of a, um, an emergency response kind of situation. So, um, that, so that's the platform side. And you will see in my commercials that I do talk about those issues. Um, I talk often about healthcare. Uh, there's a commercial running right now where I talk about an economic recovery that lifts up working families, right? That idea of who do we focus on with our economic policy? How do we share prosperity? Um, and then there are some ads that are um, negative, right? That we are in, the, I have an ad out right now talking about um, John Katko's votes that put seniors at risk. So his votes on prescription drug costs that we mentioned, he's voted um, more, more than once to put social security and Medicare funding at risk, um, to jeopardize retirement security for older Americans. It's really important to talk about these things. And uh, there is, I think there's an important difference to recognize. There is a negative ad that is talking about the issues and is holding somebody accountable for their votes. And then there is a negative ad that is a personal attack or mudslinging. Those are two very different things. Amen. And I believe that the personal attacks have no place in a campaign. And you will never see an ad come from me that attacks John Katko personally, that attacks his family, that talks about his private life. I believe that is out of bounds. And I never will sanction that. Um, I think it's worth noting he has not necessarily extended me the same courtesy, but that's his choice about how he runs his campaign. What you will see from me, and you'll see it from me with, um, pretty consistent uh, strength, I think, is 
talking about John Katko's record at a, a congressman and how he has let us down because that's what an election is about. People right. understand who's representing them and they need to understand what the choice is that's before them. And everything that goes into my ads is true. It is backed up by evidence and it is about the issues and the decisions that John Katko makes in his capacity as a congressman representing this district. Um, I take that very seriously. I take the integrity of how we run our campaign very seriously. And um, I think if we insist on those kinds of campaigns from our candidates and our electeds, we will help restore the health of our political discourse. Yeah, and there's, I mean, that is, you know, that is just in such a state right now. I'll, I'll use that to segue into uh, the next question I have. Um, it's it's kind of a two-parter. There was two comments that were back to back. One was, what will be your strategy to connect with Republican constituents should you win um, of what may be a very ugly contest? And then uh, my friend Jared said, our nation is so clearly damaged and hurting right now. If the Democrats sweep into power, how can they achieve what is needed? Uh, competency, uh, public investment, uh, systemic dis discrimination, uh, supporting the working class uh, while still engaging the 40 percent or more of the population who voted uh, against them. Uh, mm -hmm. How can we quicken the sense of of public duty in Americans? So kind of that's yeah. kind of a. You know, those were two questions that were not exactly the same, but similar back to back. So uh, any thoughts about those two topics? Yeah, I think this is sort of the perennial question in public service, right, is how do you adequately, fully and appropriately serve people who don't necessarily agree with you or with each other? And it's one of the challenges of democracy, right? It's really easy in an authoritarian regime to not worry about this stuff, right? You're in charge, you make the decision, that's it. And everybody's gonna like it because you've got the army on your side, right? That's not how it works in democracy. Democracy is messy and hard to do. And part of what we've got to reinvigorate is the willingness to engage in discourse, right? Which by definition is going to be us disagreeing with each other and figuring out how to have those conversations in ways that are productive instead of destructive. So, you know, this is a, a place where my experience as a teacher comes to be very helpful because I have taught people of all different ages over the course of my life and career. I have taught everything from preschool classes to uh, senior level government officials and everything in between. And the only um, age group that I really struggled with and think I should not ever step in front of again is middle school kids. <laughs> I, that is an age that I haven't figured out yet um, it is still a mystery to me. But part of the challenge of being a teacher is facilitating productive conversation around oftentimes difficult issues, right? And this was particularly um, the focus of my work 
as a teacher of citizenship and policy at the university level. Because we dug into a lot of the issues we talk about in a campaign, a lot of the issues I'm going to be working on in Congress in a way that is designed to explore all different perspectives on this issue and to have people try on somebody else's point of view, right? So that students who came to the class with a liberal perspective, part of my job was to encourage them and push them to dig into the writings from conservative writers and not dismiss them, but instead understand what is this author saying? What's their point of view? Mm -hmm. And what is good about that argument? Where's the strength in that argument? And my job was to push students who came in with a conservative perspective to do the same with authors who were writing from a liberal point of view and figure out what are, how do they see this differently than I do? What, what is their view of this issue and its role in our society? And, you know, part of what I love to do in the classroom is play devil's advocate, right? So when somebody comes to me with a, their idea, I'll fight back. I'll push them. I'll say, yeah, no, I don't agree with that. What about this? Have you thought about that? And encouraging them to think through these ideas. And I believe, I honestly believe that we come to the best decisions when we have a real diversity of viewpoint in the discussion on the way there. And I think that I have demonstrated as a candidate, I've tried to demonstrate this, I think I've been successful, that I am committed to showing up and listening everywhere and to everyone. And when I do town hall events, which I do all over the district, although in the time of COVID, they've had to go virtual. Right. My goal is to get people in the room who disagree with me. I'm not interested in standing in a room full of people who think that everything I say is right or who share my views on all of these issues. I mean, you know, it's fun to pat each other on the back, but that's not a productive conversation. Right. right? I want people to show up and engage who see things differently and who will say, you know what, I appreciate your passion, but I don't agree with your idea on healthcare. Here's what I'd like to see instead. Those conversations are the most important ones. They're the most valuable ones. And I think, you know, in Congress, it's going to be about sitting down with people um, from different parts of the party and from different parties uh, at the same table to work on those things. But it's also about reaching out to people in our community to make sure that the people who live here, the people who are represented by this office have a say, that they get to participate in that discussion, that they get to register their ideas and lodge their complaints and ask for the things that they want. And so part of, um, I see a really important part of my job in Congress as fostering the participation of the 720,000 people who live in this district in the governance process. Um, town halls is part of that. Using tools like this is part of that. That's why I was so excited when you said you'd be getting questions from uh, people who are at home or watching. Right. This conversation, this is the essence of what democratic governance is. Right. Um, and I think it's how we're going to make the best progress for all of us. Nice. 
Great answer. Um, I'd like to, here's another one we got from online. I'd like to hear more about her stance on the community, community grid, not just is she for it or against it, but some details on the execution. Uh, how can we make the most of the opportunity before us? That's such a great question. I feel like so often the conversation around the grid stops at which proposal do you support? And that's honestly, um, I don't want to say that's not the important part because of course that's important, but it's only the first important part. Right. And no matter which plan goes forward, it looks like it's going to be the grid. I'm glad about that. I think that's the best choice. We have to make sure that in implementation and execution, we do things right. Otherwise, all of the potential that we've been talking about for the last however many years it has been that we've been talking about this plan. I don't even want to say the number out loud. Um, Once we got into double digits, I couldn't say it anymore. Um, All the potential that we've been talking about, uh, we could lose, right? We, we, if we don't do this right, we won't realize the potential that this project has. And that would be such a shame because this has the potential to be transformative, to be the biggest and best thing that happens to our region in the next 50 years. Um, So I have actually spent quite a bit of time talking to a lot of different stakeholders in this um, area about exactly this question. What are the kinds of things we need to be thinking about when we actually do the project? So there's a The list is very, very long. I'll give you a few examples of things that I think are really important. Um, There is a lot of land that right now is not put to good use that will be opened up under the community grid project. I believe very strongly that that land needs to be returned to the city of Syracuse. And the reason I believe that is Syracuse needs to increase its tax base. One of the challenges that this city faces is there is not enough revenue to pay for everything that the city needs. And a huge contributing factor to that is how much of our proper of our land in the city is occupied by nonprofit organizations that don't have to pay taxes. Um, It's more than half of the land in the city. And this project, if the city gets that land back, then all of the development on that land, all the taxes, the property taxes that are generated by that will go to the city. And that means that the city will be able to fully fund its schools. That means the city will be able to fully fund public safety. The city will be able to fully fund all of the programs that we need. And that I think is a very, very important Uh, piece of this. I also think we have to be very thoughtful about what development is done on that land and how. So a huge piece of it is residential, right? We've got to make sure that we keep issues of racial and social justice in mind. We are talking about a lot of people who are going to be displaced by the construction project. And we have to address their needs both during the project and after the project and make sure that they can come back to their communities once 
the construction is done. We've got to make sure that we are um, using sort of best practices in mixed use building so that we're blending community, we're blending residential and commercial in the same area, that we have mixed income housing. So people from all parts of the income ladder get to share in this development. Um, it's an opportunity for us to sort of knit back together a community that's been split apart for so long because of the building of the highway in the first place. And all of those things, I think, need to be um, very intentionally done. And uh, one other thing that I would say is really, really important is to make sure that we're doing this project in the most environmentally friendly way possible, that the materials that we use are um, the best materials that we can use, and that the planning is done to maximize things like green space, to minimize things like pollution, um, and to right some of the environmental injustices uh, that have happened in the past. Nice. Very good detailed answer. So what um, the other question came from, from uh, somebody on Facebook, what house committee would you want to be assigned to and why should you, uh, should you, you know, enter sure. what, you know, what would be the assignment you'd look for, for committee? Yeah. Um, I just want to add, sorry, I know my answers are very long, but <laughs> um, I just want to add. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to add something to the 81 piece before moving on to the committees. And, and that goes back to the previous comment I made about making sure that people are involved in the process of governance. And the 81 project is a perfect example of that. And we have to make sure as we are planning and executing that all the stakeholders are engaged, right? This project is gonna happen inside the city, but this is a regional project. Yeah. And people, we know from the fighting that has happened over the last decade plus, that people have very strong opinions about this project and real concerns. And those concerns need to be addressed in the planning and execution. And so the public conversation has to continue and the people who are in positions of power to make decisions have to engage people from all across the region and make sure that whatever concerns, whether it's a racial justice concern or a noise concern or a traffic concern, that all of those things are part of the conversation and that they are all addressed with real solutions. Um, okay. Yeah. Just Amen. Make and, sure and to yeah, absolutely, and, and I just want to say no, no worries on the the long answers. You know, that's why I I started this because so often when you know when we do political conversations, it's always everybody gets one sentence or two sentences a piece. You know, and yeah. and I really feel like having these long form, hour long conversations are, are really the way to kind of get into it more, get into the weeds, and and because something like asking someone what their opinion on healthcare is, giving a one sentence answer is, is certainly not going to you know, get, convey a real sense of what their feelings are on the issue. Right. You know? That's so a really good point. Yeah. Feel free. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So back, back to the, uh, to the public, uh, what, what, what house committee would you want to be on? So I actually have three, um, choices that I'm going to ask for my, the, my top choice is education and labor. Um, 
First, because I think that the Education and Labor Committee deals with the issues that have the most direct day-to-day -day impact on our well-being. And I want to make sure that Central and Western New York has a seat at that table when that, mm -hmm. those kinds of policies are being crafted. I also think that is the committee area where I have the most to offer in terms of experience and expertise. So I think I can make the greatest contribution there. Um, the other two are agriculture and transportation and infrastructure. And um, I think agriculture is very important because we are an agricultural district. And for too long, we have not had a seat at that table. Um, we've got a lot of work to do on agriculture. It is no secret that small and medium-sized farms are getting squeezed out of the agriculture sector at an alarming rate. And um, sort of like I talked about the economy at large, we need to make it fair for everybody. We've got to do the same thing in our agriculture sector. Big money again comes in and dominates and our agriculture policy is geared to the needs of big ag. And uh, the folks who are hardworking farmers and have been for generations across our district get left out and left behind. And it's time to change that. Um, it's also really important in terms of environmental sustainability and dealing with the climate crisis. We have got to advance environmentally sound agricultural policy and we've got to make it possible for our farmers, especially our small and medium sized farmers to adopt and adapt. And they are gonna need help and support from the government to be able to do that. So that I, I really think uh, the 24th district needs a seat at that table. And then on transportation and infrastructure, as I said before, I think that's gonna be one of the keys to our economic revitalization. And so for the same reason, I want us, I want our needs in there when the agenda is being crafted. I want our, you know, the voices of Central and Western New Yorkers in there when we're making decisions, not just when it comes time for their representative to cast a vote, but when there is, um, you know, when they're shaping the policy and having the hearings and investigating and examining and analyzing. Um, so I think collectively, those are the committees in which I can do the most good for the district. So th those are the assignments I'll be asking for. Um, I don't know that I'll get them, but that's that's <laughs> where I'd like yeah. to be. Yeah. You didn't ask which ones you get to. So right. <laughs> Too. Um, so someone complimented the the photo. Uh, they said, "I love this photo of Dana, um, the one you used with uh, President Obama there with your uh, oh. arms folded." Um, and then please <laughs> ask you. her uh, what she would do to make climate crisis, green infrastructure development at the top of the national priority list. While it seems for so long and just so many people, uh, we've stopped talking about it altogether. And it seems one of those things that's like. I don't know what the analogy would be for something you need to get done in your house or something that somehow always makes it to the bottom of the triage list. It seems like, you know, everyone's putting out the fires that are active while this massive uh, existential threat comes at us and we, and we see signs of it all the time. So how do we change the national dialogue, uh, in your opinion, to to, um, you know, get it to the top of the priority list for for climate and, and green infrastructure? 
Yeah. Um, well, I think there's a little bit of good news there, which is that on a national scale, it has been rising in importance in the conversation. It now ranks very highly in public opinion polling when people ask, you know, what are your top issues? What do you care about this election? Um, the climate crisis never used to show up on the list, right? It was always just a very small group of very committed people who cared about it. That's not true anymore. It now ranks as one of the most important priorities, especially among younger voters. And the good news there is that for the first time in a really, really, really long time, baby boomers are not the largest block of voters in the country. Millennials and the generations that come after them are. And what that means is that if young people show up to vote, they can drive the agenda. Because elected representatives listen to the voters, right? If, if yeah. you let them know in no uncertain terms that you're gonna vote them out of office if they don't pay attention to the climate crisis, they're gonna pay attention to the climate crisis because the thing they care about most is holding on to their seat. So that pressure from what is now the largest block of voters in the country is gonna be very powerful but only if voters exercise it, right? So that is always my message to young people. If you show up, you can shape the conversation. And so I would say the first thing to do is talk to everybody you know under the age of 40 and make sure they understand that. If they use their power, they can accomplish a lot. Um, one thing I think we can be better at as Democrats moving forward an environmental agenda is to talk about the economic opportunity of good sound environmental policy. And, you know, I mentioned before, I think green tech, green industry is the future. It's, it is all economic upside for us yeah. if we actually do this, right? Yeah. If we don't do it, somebody else is gonna reap the economic benefits and we're gonna be left only with all of the damage, right? Which is gonna to continue to go. If we keep subsidizing fossil fuels instead of investing in renewable energy, we're gonna kill the planet and somebody else across the ocean is gonna make all the money on green technology. Yep. So I try to talk about it as economic investment and it is, we have, I mean, it's limitless potential at this point, right? Because we're just at the very beginning of it. So think about all the different parts of what we have to do to address the climate crisis. Think about all the jobs that come with upgrading our electric grid so that we can handle renewable energy, right? That's every, that blankets every part of the country. It's all got to be upgraded. Think about, um, when we do, you know, rural broadband. Think about, think about the jobs that we create. If we undertake a major initiative to improve the energy efficiency of our already existing structures in this country, right? How many of you have drafty windows or not so well insulated pipes? And when winter comes around, you're putting saran wrap over the windows and all that stuff, right? That's how we live here. 
one of the single biggest things we could do to battle the climate crisis right away is improve the energy efficiency of the buildings across this country. Mm. And every, every commitment we make to do that is jobs, right? Those are careers for people that pay really well and there's no shortage of work to do, right? So those jobs aren't going anywhere. Um, that's how, I think that's how we need to talk about this to build the political will to actually get it done. It has the added benefit of being true, right? So we don't have to trick anybody into anything. We yep. just, um, we talk about it as opportunity instead of, you know, something awful that we have to do. And um, I think my sense is that there are enough people now who understand that, that yeah. we will actually be able to move the agenda forward. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, with, with a lot of the, the stuff we've done at the city level, um, you know, it, it seems in the past we've had this kind of false dichotomy of do we want a, a clean environment or an econ or or an economy that grows? And it's it's kind of like, no, no, they're they're not mutually exclusive. This is one and the same now. And and now that we, you know, we have the technology there, it's just a matter of, of political will. So I think uh you know, it, it's I, I concur with your assessment that that's the path forward is we need to make the, the economic argument, you know, that this is a this is a smart investment. This is an investment in the future. Um, you know, so uh, what was that? What was the other one I was I was going to next? Oh, yeah, I was I was going to ask you one for myself. Uh, we, we've gone through the one I solicited from social media. So, yeah, you know, you and I both uh, first met through CNY Solidarity. Uh, through activist work, you know, we we organized some rallies together, and we we did a bunch of events uh, to to raise political awareness, and came from that activist world. Those um, were the days, Joe. Those were the days. <laughs> oh man, I many 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 reasons to wish to go back. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, sometimes being I I found in my own uh, path that being an activist or a progressive can be used as a slander. Or, or a, sure. you know, as a as a way to make you unappealing to voters. Um, mm -hmm. I was just curious, uh, you know, how you, you know, in that, you know, New York twenty four is a purple district, and you know, uh, the the, uh, the banner of of being an activist. Do you, and and particularly the word progressive as well. I mean, do you wear that badge with pride or, sure. uh, yeah, yeah. And, and I'd also ask uh, as a secondary question that how do you feel about, you know, the squad AOC and the new class of Congress and and kind of the dynamics of, you know, uh, the progressive label and, and, and how you, you know, how you relate to that or don't relate to that. And, and, and you know, how you feel about the, the climate of some of the new progressive movements that are happening. Sure. Um, yes, I wear I wear those badges with pride. Um, I tend, you know, I've talked about this many times, I don't like to use labels because I think they cause more confusion and misunderstanding than anything else. Uh, the way you define progressive may be different from the way I define progressive, may be different from the way John Kako defines progressive. Right. Um, and so I think, especially as our political discourse has gotten more heated and more polarized and more, um, vicious over the last decade or so, um, I find it less and less useful to use those kinds of labels. I think they don't get us anywhere. So 
for that reason, I tend to not use them. Now, by the same token, I don't at all try to hide the fact that I'm a Democrat, that I'm a progressive, that I'm an activist. Um, those are parts of who I am. And I believe very firmly in the values that underpin all of that. And I stand 100% by uh, those values and all of the things that I have done in support of those values. Um, for sure, people try to use it as a weapon. Uh, we, John Katko is doing it as we speak. Um, here's the thing that's really amazing to me. And this sort of came into very sharp relief for me with the very sad death of John Lewis recently. Um, he of course was an extraordinary human being, um, more committed to a, the cause of justice um, and then certainly than anybody else I've ever met in my life. Um, and by all accounts, uh, a human being who didn't just espouse those ideals, but actually lived them personally. And I think he's an extraordinary example. What is amazing to me, and that this is what sort of came into focus for me when he died, John Katko uh, put out a statement, as did just about everybody in Congress, um, lauding John Lewis's life and work, which is totally appropriate. He is an incredible man who gave for this country in ways that um, most people would not have the capacity to. What I thought was really amazing is that in his statement about John Lewis, John Katko specifically praised his lifelong fight for justice and his role as a civil rights icon. Now, this is the same man, John Katko, who has spent years deriding me and the entire community of activists in central and western New York for being activists. And the current, we right now today are engaged in very intense fights for justice in this country. Those fights are not over. I mean, what has happened in the wake of George Floyd's murder is only the latest iteration of something that John Lewis did in the 60s and has been going on for generations, right? And we do what we do and we know how to do what we do because of incredible leaders like John Lewis who have shown the way, right? And who have encouraged the generations that have come after to get into what he describes as good trouble, right? And the idea that you can in the same day say the people who are standing up and fighting for social justice right now are troublemakers. Right. They're just making noise. They just want to shake their fists and dismiss them as unimportant and turn around two hours later and say, John Lewis was a civil rights icon and I honor his work. Right. Is just an amazing it's an amazing thing to me. And it leaves me with the question, 
does Congressman Kako not understand what John Lewis was all about? Is that is it just purely performative? He knows he has to say that about John Lewis, or does he really not understand that? Um, you know, last chance for change, who marched for 40 days in the streets of Syracuse. They are doing the modern day version of what John Lewis did in the 60s, right? It's, it is all part and parcel of the same fight. And by the way, mass movements are the only way we get change. History shows us that over and over and over again. It's the people who show up to stand in the streets, who carry the signs, who make the phone calls and write the letters and stand arm in arm and say, I'm protecting the people behind me. That is how we bring change. Um, so I am, I am, I am proud of it. I am uh, committed to it. And by the way, um, while I, you know, threw myself into it with every fiber of my being, I also recognize that, um, you know, I'm new to the game and that there are thousands and thousands of people in our community who have been doing this work for decades. Um, I share a lot of uh, privileges that mean I got to sort of take a shortcut to the front of the line and get the microphone and get people to listen to me. But, um, really what I wanna do in this job, the reason why I wanna serve in Congress is to make sure that that microphone is in front of the face of every person who's on the ground doing the work and has been for decades. And just make sure that in Washington DC, the people and the power structures hear those voices and finally respond to the needs. Awesome. Well, Dana, thanks for, for spending this hour with me. Is there any uh, parting thoughts, any last things you wanna say before we, uh, before we wrap up here? I just, I'm so glad that you're doing this um, for exactly the reason you said before, like these conversations are complicated and they should be in depth and you should get to explore. And I know that uh, you are well known and, and beloved throughout the region. And the fact that um, you are using um, that attention to have important conversations and make them accessible to people, I think is so important. So thank you. Um, and then to folks watching, if you want to get involved, if you care about what we're fighting for, um, if you want to see the kind of change that I'm describing, please help us out. Uh, the campaign website is electdanabalter.com. You can sign up to volunteer, you can donate money. Um, and if you have other questions or you have thoughts and ideas you want to share, if you disagree with things you heard me say and you want to give me a different perspective, um, please share that with me. Reach out through our website. There's an email form there. You can uh, send those emails directly in and I want to hear from you. And um, I, am, I am convinced that 2020 is going to be a transformative year for the United States. I'm really excited for us to be a part of it. And um, I hope that uh, you all participate in the election and get out and vote. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dana. With that, um, I'll, I'll say goodbye. And thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you very much. And good thank luck you. out there. All right. Thank you, Joe. Take care. Well, great. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, thanks to our guest, Dana Balter. 
Um, for those of you um, that were watching, you, you know, you can go to Dana's website, uh, look her up, get involved, uh, donate to the campaign, uh, activate. Um, and once again, we, we finalized the, uh, the website. It should be live in the next 48 hours, uh, saltcitygrind.com. You can find us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple uh, Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. We're available there now. Uh, one last time, thanks to our sponsor um, for this section, uh, Glazed and Confused. Right there is their strawberry shortcake donut. You can go down there on Friday and check them out. Uh, delicious stuff going on in the 315. You can check them out. So thank them. Thanks to them for their sponsorship. Thanks to Original Grain uh, for their sponsorship. And once again, uh, check out Salt City Grind. You can find us on a lot of different platforms now. We're not just on Facebook. We're on YouTube, uh, Apple, and Spotify. So uh, thanks one more time to Dana Balter. And if you think there's someone else I should be having a conversation with, drop me a line. Uh, let me know of other interesting conversations we could be having in the 315 uh, we've started this platform to keep you guys updated on what's going on politically, socially, culturally, musically uh, in the 315. So uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And we'll be back again, I believe, on Thursday, meeting with uh, Oceana Fair to talk about families for lead freedom that are fighting against lead poisoning here in 315. So peace and love, everybody. Thanks for uh, tuning in. Thanks to Dana Balter and thanks to you all for listening. <laughs>